extravagant generosity. As you have been to me, so I will be to others. That's the mantra of a grace-soaked believer. We've seen how that creates in us a generous spirit toward the offenses of others. But how does that change our attitude towards our possessions? What does a gospel-centered believer's relationship with money look like? I know you're expecting a pretty pat answer here. Something like, whatever you're giving, it's not enough. There are kids in India who survive on three grains of rice a day. Feel guilty and give more. Understanding the gospel will certainly lead you to extravagant generosity. How could it not? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. If we understand what Jesus gave up to save us, how could we not willingly and joyfully give up our own possessions so that others might have life also? But there is a dilemma. How could we ever give up enough to equal what Jesus gave up for us? Jesus had his beloved father turn his face away from him in the hour he needed him most. None of us will ever give up anything like that ever compares to that. In addition to that, the Bible talks about a number of things God wants us to do with our money besides just give it away, though he certainly does want us to be extravagantly generous with it. Money is a tool he puts in our hands for the accomplishing multiple purposes in our lives. So this chapter is a little more of an in-depth look on what gospel-centered generosity looks like. Two primary errors. I find that there are two primary errors when it comes to Christians' attitudes toward giving. The first error goes something like this. God wants 10%, and after that, you can do whatever you want with your money. In other words, after you've tithed, you've done your duty, so that you can go on your merry way, using the other 90% to lavish gifts upon yourself. For many Christians, giving away that first 10% is actually means getting God to increase the other 90%. Bring the tithe into the storehouse, they say, and see if God will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out such an abundance of blessing that you cannot contain it. For these believers, giving is an investment plan to get more stuff. This position by itself is just not incomplete. It is more unchristian because ultimately its primary motivation is money. We give to God to get more money from God. It is true that God promises to bless us when we give, but receiving more money is not the primary reason we are to give. We should give in grateful response to a God who gave everything for us. When we give to God primarily in order to get more from Him, we are not worshiping God, we are using Him. This kind of giving has nothing to do with what Jesus was talking about when He said, take up your cross and follow Him. Following Jesus means that we leverage our lives for the kingdom of God, just as he leveraged his for us. Jesus said his life was like a seed that fell into the ground and died so that life could come out of it to benefit others. Every disciple of Jesus must feel the same about his or her own life. Jesus did not tithe his blood for us. He gave it all. What he deserves in response, indeed what he demands, is a full offering of our lives. Those people who give God a tithe so they can get 
with a self-centered life have not yet embraced the path of discipleship. The second and opposite error in Christian approaches to giving goes something like this. The only thing you should do with your money is give it away to the poor. After all, there are always more poor and more lost people. Thus, if there's something you have that you could give away and still survive, you should give it away. I've heard this attitude toward our possessions described before as a battle mentality. In a battle, you divest yourself of all luxuries to provide resources for the battle. All your luxury metal gets melted down for bullets. All available capital, therefore, be used to feed the poor and pay the salaries of missionaries. Remember that scene in Schindler's List when the reality of how many Jews had been killed in the Holocaust sets in on Liam Neeson, and he looks at his watch and says, This watch. I didn't need this watch. Why couldn't I have sold this? This watch could have freed two Jews. That's how people in this position think. This position suggests that we should live as minimally as humanly possible and give all the rest away. You ask questions like this. If your kids were starving, wouldn't you liquidate your retirement to feed them? If your children were sold in the sex trade, wouldn't you give up everything you had to rescue them? I find this position inspiring, and it certainly at least partially correct. We are in a real battle with real casualties that we can't ignore. But while this position is much more in line with the New Testament than the previous approach, it is still out of balance with the full biblical teaching on money and in places with the gospel itself. I advocated this position personally for a while, and quite honestly, it led me to despair. There was always someone who needed Jesus and another orphan to be cared for. So, did I really need to get a Coke with lunch? Couldn't I drink tap water and give that 140 to missions? Wouldn't that feed an orphan for a week? Or should I ever be eating out at all? And even if I eat at home, can I eat something above beans and rice? Lots of orphans don't even have that. And do I really need a wedding ring, or at the very least a gold one? I could sell my gold one and give that money to missions. Were the curtains in my house a peacetime luxury that should really go to provide warm pajamas for a kid in India? Correcting our perspective. I have come to see four biblical errors with that attitude. First, this kind of thinking has no practical end. When is enough enough? As I mentioned at the beginning of this chapter, if a person compares their sacrifice to that of Jesus, they will always come up short. He left heaven to come to earth, had no place to lay his head, and died a torturous death. He faced abandonment by God. There's nothing we can do to equal the sacrifice of Jesus. As to the battle mentality, well, in battle, if I had no bullets and the enemy was coming for my family, I would w melt down all my spoons and eat with my hands so I could have bullets to defend my kids. I have noticed, however, that most proponents of the give-it-all-away view, however, still have spoons. Do they really care more about their precious spoons than they do the souls in the Sudan? If not, why not sell their spoons? Surely they could survive without spoons. Sincere believers advocating this position tell us to spend money only on necessities, give away any excess. But what exactly is excess? If you ate anything above rice and beans, wasn't that excess? 500 years ago, John Calvin perceived the never-ending trajectory of this type of thinking. He said, 
If a man begins to doubt whether he may use linen for his sheets, shirts, handkerchiefs, and napkins, he will afterward be uncertain also about hemp. For he will turn over in his mind whether he can sup without napkins or go without handkerchief. If any man should consider daintier food unlawful, in the end he will not be at peace before God when he eats either black bread or common victuals, while it occurs to him that he could sustain his body on even coarser foods. If he boggles at sweet wine, he will not with clear conscience drink even flat wine. And finally, he will not dare touch water if sweeter and cleaner than other water. Second, this approach assumes that God needs our money. This should come as no surprise to you, but he does not. God created the world with just a word and no help from any of us. He can make enough food for 5,000 families with just five loaves and two fishes. He can use the two mites of the widow to do more than the richest of the rich. He can make money appear in fish's mouths when he needs it. Whenever he so desires, he can persuade a King Cyrus to pay for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Believe me, he's not short on money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and can sell any of them whenever he wants. At no point does he ever approach us as if he needs on our resources to get his job done. That's not to say he hasn't made the church co-labors in his mission. It is certainly true that he has put into the hands of the church the material resources he plans to use to bring salvation to the world. But while God uses our generosity as part of his plan, that's different than implying that God needs our money to get the job done. Third, this position ends up being, for all its spiritualized language, a form of compulsory giving. We are ratched by guilt and give to alleviate it. Gospel-centered giving, by contrast, is characterized by freedom. We give in joyful response to the grace of Christ because there is nothing we'd rather do with our money than glorify Him and see His kingdom come on earth. The New Testament goes to meticulous lengths to avoid prescribing an amount believers should give. For example, in the Gospel of Luke, at least three times, Jesus commends a different amount. In Luke 18:22, Jesus is talking to a rich young ruler who has tons of money, and Jesus says to him, Give away all your money, every penny, and come and follow me. In Luke 11, Jesus is referring to how some people give, and he says, You tithe, which is giving away 10%, and he says, That is good. And in Luke 19, 9, Zacchaeus gives away 50%, and Jesus says, That is very good and proves you've been saved. For type A people like me, such ambiguity drives us crazy. Well, which is it, Jesus? 100% or 10% or 50%? Jesus, I need a box to check off. What's the exact amount I have to give to get my gold star? The point is, there is no one answer. A spirit of generosity is simply not something you can produce by establishing a standard. Fourth, this position is out of sync with a number of other things the Bible teaches about God's purpose in giving us possessions. God did not give us money simply for us to give it away. Please don't misinterpret that. God does provide us with a lot of money that he does indeed want us to leverage for others, to give it away freely. But God has other purposes in giving us money beyond giving it away. According to Paul, God gives us some material things to enjoy, and he's glorified as we enjoy them. Any good father loves to delight his children with gifts. Our Heavenly Father is no different. 
Wise King Solomon taught us that saving money can be prudent and that godly men often leave money to their children's children. So let's delve more into what those purposes are. The generosity matrix. We like rules, formulas, and black and white prescriptions. With money, however, the God gives us complementary values, a gospel-centered heart holds in balance. I find at least six principles about money that we should hold in reverent tension. Any one of those principles taken alone will knock you out of balance. Holding all six principles in tension, however, leads you to extravagant generosity and humble appreciation of God's good gifts. Here they are. Number one, God gives excess to some so they can share with those who have less. In 2 Corinthians 8, 13-15, Paul uses the story of manna given to the Israelites in the wilderness to explain God gives excess to some so we can share it with others. If my wife packs my little girl's lunch and she puts two sandwiches in it because she knew there was a kid at school who had nothing, we would want her to give it away when she was given the chance. We don't need her to squirrel it away in case tomorrow we forget to give her lunch. We won't forget. God does the same with us. He gives excess to some of us today so we can share today with those in need today. He won't forget about us tomorrow. The Old Testament talks in numerous places about believers' responsibilities to the poor. James says that if we see a brother suffering and withhold our resources from him, then we are not really people of faith. Acts says in the early church, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus, those of us with relatively a lot should give freely to those with little. It's precisely why God gave some of us a lot. We'll have to answer to him for what we do with our abundance. Sharing with the poor is both our duty and our joyful privilege. Number two, Jesus' radical generosity toward us serves as a model and a motivation for our radical generosity. In 2 Corinthians 8 9, Paul further explains to the Corinthians that Jesus' generosity toward them should be the pattern of their generosity toward others. As I said above, Jesus did not merely tithe his blood, he gave it all. As God increases our ability to earn money and gives us greater positions of power, we should leverage that power and money like Jesus did. Not to increase our own standard of living, but to increase our standard of giving. We should think of life like Jesus did. Paul says, who leveraged his position and his resources to save us rather than prosper himself. Thus, we should leverage our prosperity for the sake of world evangelism, not greater self-indulgence. Paul says that God actually multiplies our financial resources for the purpose of increasing our seed for sowing. How can any of us who have tasted the extravagant love of Christ be stingy with our resources? Doesn't his compassion toward us make us naturally disposed to help those in need? If we see someone who has a need that we can meet, how can our heart not want to help them? Won't we love the fatherless and the widow and the shut-in and the homeless, since we know that we once were fatherless, estranged from the Father, disabled and headed for eternal separation from God? How can we say we love others and not pour out our lives so that others can hear? I was once sharing the gospel with a girl named Rhonda. After talking for quite some time, she said, 
I couldn't believe what you believe. It would wreck my life. I said, why? She said, I, I believe what you believe, that my friends were condemned and salvation could only be found by believing in Jesus. I would approach each of them. In fact, every person I met on my hands and knees and plead with them to believe in Jesus. I would never stop pleading, never stop weeping until I had convinced everyone to believe. Do we feel that way about the lost? Paul, who talks so much about freedom in the Christian life, says he felt under obligation to those who haven't heard about Christ. God had revealed himself to Paul in grace. How could Paul not yield his life for others? Are you leveraging your life for others as Jesus leveraged his for you? Number three, the Holy Spirit must guide us as to which sacrifices we personally are to make. In the more Baptist and Reformed-ish circles I run in, people are not exactly sure, practically speaking, what the Holy Spirit does beyond regenerating our hearts and convicting us of sin. I'm not going to attempt to answer the question of what all the Holy Spirit does here, but I do believe the Holy Spirit actively guides us. In fact, in the area of generosity, I depend on it. How do I know which priorities of heaven I should leverage my limited resources for? I don't hear a lot of audible voices and don't give much weight to the holy hunches, but I do think that the Holy Spirit has to show us which of his mission priorities are for us. Without that guidance, I'm not sure what I would do. I'd feel like I was called to everything. Now again, this principle, if taken by itself, will lead you awry. In fact, if you only give because the Holy Spirit tells you to, then your giving is not overflowing from a heart of gratitude. You're just following orders. Remember, God doesn't want people who give only because they are told. He wants people whose hearts rise up spontaneously and joyfully when they are given the chance to be generous. Number four, God delights in our enjoyment of his material gifts. I love to give my kids things they enjoy. God is certainly no different. Scripture tells us God is the ultimate daddy. He loves to delight us with all kinds of blessings. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, after reminding the rich of their responsibility to be generous, that it is God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. God gives us material blessings as gifts, and he is glorified when we enjoy them. Scripture makes this point in a number of places. For example, Psalm 114.15 says, He gives good food and wine, fruit juice for those of us who are Baptists, to gladden our hearts, not just to nourish our bodies. An outback steak glorifies Jesus. Praise God. In John 2, it says Jesus created really good wine at the wedding feast in Cana. He could have done the watered-down, cheap, and sufficient wartime wine. Again, for you fellow Baptists for whom this wine analogy is lost on, it would be like going to a wedding reception with Jesus where they run out of the little ham sandwiches and Jesus makes a prime rib and shrimp buffet in their place. The point is that Jesus provided good stuff for people at the party because he loved his father's creation and knew that by enjoying it, we glorify God. In Nehemiah 8, when the people were wondering how to express their gratitude for rediscovering the law, their first response was to weep. But Ezra and Nehemiah corrected the people and said, instead, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. 
and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. God wanted them to express their gratefulness, in this case, through a lavish party. Couldn't they have just gnawed on corn husks and vegetables and drank water and given the rest of their money to the poor? Of course, but at this moment, God wanted them to party. When the woman anointed Jesus' feet in John 12, Judas objected because the price of the perfume poured out over Jesus' feet was $25,000, and that clearly could have bought a lot of food for the poor. But Jesus doesn't say, you're right, Judas. Mary, come on, we're in a war. You should melt that stuff down and use it for war bullets. Rather, Jesus delighted in the extravagant, uncalled-for, luxurious, over-the-top display of love. Now, you may object and say, but anointing the feet of Jesus is different than spending $4 on a caramel macchiato for ourselves when we could drink water instead and give the money to missions. Of course, you're right, but don't miss the point. Jesus recognized other uses for money besides just evangelism and poverty relief. Again, if you take this principle apart from the other five, you will get out of balance. God has given me richly all things to enjoy and he doesn't need my money can easily be used to justify an indulgent, self-serving lifestyle. But you can and should recognize God's fatherly goodness to you in material blessings. You don't have to feel guilty about making lots of money. You don't have to feel guilty about enjoying some of the blessings of money. Paul said that not only did he know how to be abased, he also knew how to abound. Some Christians seem to know how to be abased, but not how to abound. We must learn to receive both suffering and prosperity from God's hands. Larry Osborne says, When God Abrahams me, blesses me with prosperity, I'll give him thanks, enjoy it, and share it generously. And when he jobs me, the Old Testament prophet, then I'll thank him, trust him, and enjoy my relationship to him. By God's grace, I know both how to be abased and how to abound. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I think this is precisely what Paul meant in that verse. Number five, God, not money, should be our primary source of beauty and security. Many of us save up money obsessively for a rainy day. Others spend money frivolously to acquire the most up-to-date status symbols and creature comforts. For the former, money is their primary source of security. For the latter, their primary source of beauty. To those who see money as their security, Jesus says, consider the birds of the air. They don't save money, yet God takes care of them. God can take care of you better than money ever could. So don't worry about tomorrow because God is better security than money. To those who see money as their beauty, Jesus says, consider the flowers of the field. They don't spend a lot of money, yet God makes them beautiful. Even Solomon in his glory days was not as pretty as the flowers. In other words, God will add a beauty, significance, and enjoyment to your life that money cannot. So you don't have to spend all your money adding those things to your life. Let God be your beauty and security. When we no longer see money as our primary source of security and beauty, we naturally will have more to give away. Christians who worship God, not money, need much less from the world to be happy and secure. This can, as we love to say around our church, live sufficiently and give extravagantly. Furthermore, Jesus also told us that if we understood what was coming in the resurrection, 
we'd see heavenly treasures as much wiser investments than earthly ones. In the resurrection, we will experience the blessings of creation at their fullest. So we don't have to get it all down here. What we miss out on down here, we'll experience the resurrection version of up there. So you never get to take a vacation to the Alps? Big deal. Do you know what the resurrected version of the Alps is going to look like? If Jesus' resurrected body was recognizable, could be touched, eat fish, but could also walk through walls, what is the rest of the resurrected creation going to look like? You probably won't even have to fly coach up there to go see all the Alps. You probably won't have to fly on an airplane at all. You'll probably fly yourself. So Jesus challenged us to think a little further out and invest our resources in a way that reaps dividends for eternity. As Randy Alcorn says, you can't take any of your money with you when you die, but you can send a lot of it on ahead of you. As God's kingdom becomes our treasure, joyful generosity becomes our natural response. Number six, wealth building can be wise. God says it is okay, even biblically wise, to build wealth. Consider these clear instructions in Proverbs. The crown of the wise is their wealth. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whosoever gathers little by little will increase it. Go to the ant, O slugger, consider her ways. She prepares and saves her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Solomon goes so far in Proverbs 13 as to say that a wise man can leave an inheritance that blesses even his grandchildren. That's a pretty significant wad of cash that God expects some believers to die with. In fact, building wealth can actually increase your ability to be generous. Having money on hand can allow you to be strategically generous when the right moment arises. Some of the earliest Christians had houses large enough to hold some of the first church meetings, which was good since they were kicked out of every other facility. The Good Samaritan was able to give his money to the man in need precisely because he had extra. Furthermore, the most basic principle of economics is that money creates money. Through the compound interest that accumulates on sizable savings, you can give more away over a lifetime if you invest some of your money wisely than you could by simply ridding yourself of all of it as soon as you get it. Proverbs teaches that, and so does Jesus in the parable of the talents. Thus, sometimes the investment of a portion of the money is a more generous decision than giving it all away. Now again, if you held this principle alone and not in tension with the others, it would lead to the hoarding of wealth, something scripture condemns in James 5. We must balance responsible saving with generous giving. People are dying now and we must be generous to them now, not just at our death. Clearly, however, the Bible indicates you can save money in a God-honoring way. How much should Christians give? You've been in waiting for the bottom line. Fallen human nature loves laws because we love self-justification. But laws keep us from dealing with the real issue, our heart. The law is easier to preach, too, whether that's giving 10%, giving away all our excess, living at the average American household salary and giving away everything above that, using a PC instead of a Mac, drinking Folgers instead of Starbucks. Laws preach nicely. But the gospel writers resist the temptation to reduce Christianity to laws. They focus on the heart. That's why, I believe, the Bible gives us a matrix of these six principles and leaves them, in some ways, unresolved. These six principles will all be at work in a gospel-saturated heart. 
So let's resist the temptation to add specificity where the Bible does not. The bigger questions that we must ask about money are heart questions like these. What does your spending show that you delight in? When you get an extra amount of money you weren't expecting, does your heart first go to what you want to buy for yourself or the health and salvation this can provide for others? What does your spending show that you delight in? Take a hard look at your checkbook. What does the record of expenditures show that you love? What does your savings show you find security in? Who do you trust to take care of you in the future? Do you need to save so much? People are suffering now, and God is giving you resources now to help them. Could we not save modestly and give away extravagantly? Can we not depend on the God who provides for us today also to take care of us tomorrow? Whose kingdom are you building? The most fundamental question every disciple of Christ must ask himself is which kingdom is his primary pursuit? Quit thinking so much about amount you're giving and think instead about which kingdom you're pursuing. Following Jesus means seeing your life as a seed to be planted for God's kingdom. So ask yourself, what have you done with the majority of your resources up to this point in your life? How are you leveraging your talents now for God's kingdom? What have you spent the majority of your money on thus far? Where does the bulk of your treasure lie? Awakening from the American dream to the gospel reality. American Christians have lived in a culture saturated by something we have learned to call the American dream. The American dream is, in its essence, a good thing. It was the promise of freedom, the freedom to pursue life and prosperity without government or societal restraints. I am very thankful to live in a country that has made it easy to become relatively wealthy. I've lived overseas under dictatorships and visited plenty of communist countries. Believe me, I love the American dream. But as a disciple of Jesus, what matters most is what I do with the wealth that the American dream has afforded me. Jesus did not put me here on earth to pursue self-benefit. He put me here to leverage my blessings, including the American dream, for the purposes of the gospel. People who die without Christ go to hell forever. The only way they can hear about the gospel is through us. We are in a battle, and the casualties are real. We must awaken from the American dream to gospel reality. We've only got one life to live and a short time to live it. Thus, we should leverage our lives for all they are worth and think about this soberly. Soon, we stand before King Jesus, and we will give an account for what we did with what he placed in our hands. Do we dare take the resources provided to us by a Savior who bled and died for us and fill our lives with perks and privileges that simply make our lives more enjoyable? I challenge you to pray the third part of the gospel prayer over your resources and then follow where God leads you. I'll warn you, praying this prayer with sincerity is dangerous. It could radically alter your life. But Jesus, the gospel, and lost people all over the world are worth it. As you have been to me, so I will be to others.